Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these lectures are meant for medical education only, not for anybody's weird eye diagnoses. <laughs> Each week we take a high topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? Uh, this week we are talking about parametry. There's a, obviously a lot that I could go into with parametry. I do glaucoma, so I'll try not to go overboard. I did kind of sweep through the BCSC just to make sure that really we limit ourselves to what's mostly just in there. There are a few other factoids that actually turned out not to explicitly be in even the 2020 edition of the BCSC that still you know wind up getting tested. So we'll start with those just to cover some of the basics of um, how a lot of these, mainly the Humphrey parameter work. But before that, let me give an overview over all the different versions of the parameter visual field machines that there are currently that you might run into in practice, and then what's come before that you might even run into one day. Sound okay, Ben, if I, with that sort of map? Oh, no, go, go to town. Go to <laughs> okay. freaking town. So parametry, you know, as a concept has been around for a long time, actually, and just kind of going through some of the history, we don't have to go into all of it, but literally it's been done for centuries. More, Maybe more of it's uh, more of the stuff that becomes familiar to us kind of pops up around the late 19th, early 20th century with the tangent field, uh, which is just like a big felt velvet, like giant uh, screen that people would put on a whole wall of their clinic offices. That transitioned into the bowls that we know and love or hate, if you're a patient. With more of the Goldman, the Goldman perimeter came up, I think, in like the 40s or 50s with Dr. Goldman. And those that's the standard of the kinetic type of parametry, where a trained technician is actually moving a little stimulus arm around. It's basically like a little target, a ball or something mounted on this swivel arm that the technician can move around and literally trace out the boundaries of what a patient can see. It's actually a great way of testing somebody's visual field, especially kind of in the more peripheral areas. It especially works if um, the patient is actually more easily confused because it's easier. It's kind of more intuitive to see what the technician's trying to go for when you're moving this thing in and out of your field of vision. But it does require really trained people to administer it, and it's very time-consuming. So most folks, especially as automated parametry became better and better, you'll rarely see Goldman kinetic parametry in use anymore. A notable exception I was, I was happy to find is here at the University of Iowa, where I'm not going to boast or anything too much, but we've got amazing parametrists who still do Goldman's. And they are very useful. We'll talk about them later, but mostly again the BCSC focuses and you'll you're testing like OCAPs and board and stuff, we'll talk about more the automated parametry, of course, with more of a lean towards the Humphrey parameter. I'll just give a shout out. Kellogg actually does a lot of these too, which oh, nice. I, I was surprised cool. and impressed by and I was surprised because, you know, they do it, um, you know, for a lot of our like inherited retinal dystrophy patients and such. And I was like, oh man, I have, I love where we train for residency, but I did not train in like extensively how to interpret these things. So that was a, a bit of a crash course, but yeah, they are still used at, um, you know, a couple eye centers at least. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, at this point I've been to three and 
This is the first that I've come across really standard use of it. So if you happen to be in a place that does them, uh, pat yourself on the back because you know more about it than lots of people. Uh, but transitioning now to standard automated parametry, you'll run into two main models, the Humphrey visual field, which has gone through a lot of iterations over the years, and more, most people use that. If you happen to be at Wills or train in the area around Wills, uh, I know that a lot of the practitioners there prefer the Octopus system, and I, I will say this talk is going to really focus a lot on what's going to feel like industry-specific things. And Ben and I work hard to try to keep our podcast as neutral from outside influence as possible, which is why, you know, <laughs> we don't make anything from this. At the same time, we can't get around it. And actually, I have to credit these companies for really leading the way with such an important foundational testing element of how we keep track of our patients. And shout out to people like Anders Hale, Dr. Bo Bangston, Dr. Mike Patella. There was this amazing kind of collaboration between academic academicians and industry, especially back when in the 90s when this was really kind of evolving for the first time. And all those people were and are big players in how these parameters became more and more sophisticated. But if you, again, taking it back to where will you find some of these, the octopus stuff is, again, if you are trained out of wills, I know they use it a lot. The BCSC, again, tends to focus more on the Humphrey, so this talk will be mostly Humphrey-based with <laughs> disclosures. That's just yeah. how it is for now. Sorry. It's funny. I remember, you know, in medical school, we had our kind of random few ophthalmology lectures was where I went to med school. They talked like they only talked about the octopus system. So I just find it interesting, like where the different things hmm. kind of popped up or not. Like, I, I, yeah, I just was like, where are the, when I got the residency, I was like, where's all these octo, octopi or octopodes <laughs> that we learned about in, um, in med school, but did not I, find them. I do wonder if the octopus is going to start becoming more popular, especially around this time of COVID, because all of the others are bowl parameters and you're sticking the patient's face into this like half bowl thing. And there's been some concern, you know, about how do we keep those clean without ruining the illumination specifications of the bowl? How do we keep transmission of a virus to a minimum. The octopus, some of their models doesn't have that kind of bowl enclosure. Some of it is just sort of like a flat screen in front of a person, which might be a little nicer if you're a little worried about stuff. Anyway, going forward, I will kind of talk here and there about some of the differences between octopus, but let's just start with stuff about the basics of how at least the Humphrey and the Goldman's setups are as far as the kind of lights and the illumination levels, the way we keep track, like how we actually measure somebody's responses to these in decibels. So let's first talk about illumination, like the amount of light that is being used to make all of those little stimulus spots on the bowl surface itself. And as well, you know, there has to be a certain amount of light present on the bowl. It's actually not just a dark empty, like completely dark bowl that the lights are shining in. Let me start with that, actually. I'll sort of pimp you a little bit, Ben. Do you know why they might have made it such that the there is some background illumination on the back of the bowl? Like, why isn't it that we just stick people into a dark room and start flashing lights at them? Yeah, the idea is you want to saturate their rods. Absolutely right. I am 
impressed that you could do that without any notes. Sorry. No, no. no. <laughs> but yeah, we are trying to test people under photopic conditions because we're really trying to test only the cones and someone's visual perspective, um, visual experience. We want to know what they can see in the daylight. So the Humphrey perimeter has a background illumination at all time times of about 31 and a half apostilbs. Let's talk about what an apostilb is. And actually, I might find a lot of help from you and your physics background here, Ben. I have very little, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an you enthusiast. Were just, you were just showing like me some crazy looking waveform stuff. But anyway, an ap apostilb is actually like an old kind of outdated way of referring to illumination, one of those illumination units. If you look around light bulb shopping, you're never going to find any product advertising itself in apostilbs. So apostilbs is like this arbitrary unit that is made like the, what's, what's SI stand for? Scientific. Scientific. International. It's yeah, French, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scientific international unit is NIT. <laughs> so, uh, so, so NIT is like in, you know, in like normal people units, it, but they're related. I mean, I don't know if you were going to get into this. I don't want to steal your thunder, but no, no, please, please, the, please. The reason it's this seemingly random number, thirty-one point five apostilbs, is because a NIT. So one NIT equals pi apostilbs. 3.14 apostilbs. So really what the machine is projecting is 10 nits. Like 10, 10 nits is like the standard. So 10 nits would be 31.4, you know, et cetera, et cetera, apostilbs. And I guess you just round up to 31.5. So that's why 31.5 is the number, a seemingly random number. <laughs> Thank you. Uh -huh. Now the maximum illumination, like how high do the apostilbs get, is actually a little different for each machine. And the max, we'll see why that's important to know, but a Humphrey is able to shine a little brighter than a Goldman kinetic perimeter, for example. So the max um, apostilbs that a Humphrey can show is 10,000. So just compare that to the 31 and a half compared to 10,000, and you'll see there's a lot of space between what's shown there and versus how much brighter it can get is in any one of those stimuli that will be shown. The Goldman just goes up to a thousand apostilbs. The reason why we bring that up is when we start talking about decibels as a unit of measure of how a person's responding to things. Basically, we want to see how where someone clicks the button when they say they see the stimulus you present to them. And that's measured as far as decibels, which is a relative measure that takes into account how bright the maximum brightness of the machine can be. So let's take the Humphrey again for an example. If uh, the max of the Humphrey is 10,000 apostilbs, then a 10 decibel response is going to be one-tenth the maximum of that uh, machine. So 10 decibels on a Humphrey is equivalent to one-tenth of its max apostilbs, which is one-tenth of a 10,000. So 10 decibels is, is 1,000 apostilbs. Going further, 20 decibels is therefore 1 over 100 of the max, and that's going to be 100 apostilbs. So 10 decibels is equivalent to 1,000 apostilbs. 20 decibels is equivalent to 100 apostilbs. Then what's 30 decibels then? So 
that would be one order of magnitude less. So then that would be 10 apostilbes. Right. From 100. Yeah. Yeah. So each 10 apostilbes gives you one order, like takes off a zero. Pretty much. And you can notice that as these decibels get bigger and bigger, as far as they, um, if they become more and more positive, the amount of light is less and less and less. So when somebody is shown like, okay, at this certain spot, they measure out as like 30 decibels or so, that's pretty good. It means that they were actually able to see a pretty dim light. 30 decibels again is just 10 apostilbes, fairly dim. If they instead register as something like in this spot, they could only see a 10 decibel measurement or something, that means it took a pretty darn bright light until they were able to see it. So uh, yeah. you have to kind of remember the decibel measurement is a report of how bright it uh, light was required for the patient to register as seeing. Yeah. And for frame of reference, sunlight is about 30,000 apostles. So, Ooh. yeah. So that means like the maximum intensity the Humphrey will produce is like a third of the brightness of sunlight. So just to give you a frame of reference, that's what the, I mean, so it's like, still pretty dang bright, right? Um, if someone has like, needs zero decibels to, to trigger. Yeah. And can I say, I don't know if we've ever brought this up before, but why, why the hell did they call it a decibel? Like a bell <laughs> is a unit, it's like acoustic unit. Like they couldn't, isn't there like a fancier thing they could have come up with instead of decibel? Like, mm. and like, why call it deci? Cause it's like, you know, a 10th of a bell was like, why is decibels and just easier to work with? So why do they just, like it's just they couldn't mm. don't complicate an already complicated thing buddy. i know but it's just such a silly <laughs> name for an i like for like this test they call it a decibel if you the listener have a proposed alternative name to decibels you can tweet it to us at eyes for ears of the number four <laughs> so um just so you also know it's pretty much impossible for any human to see more than uh well to see better than a 40 decibel uh mark 40 decibels would, of course, be like one apostilbe. So you can't really see too much dimmer than that. So in case you see measurements on a visual field that are saying like 40 decibels, 45 decibels everywhere, something, something ain't right with uh, how yeah. that patient is in, inputting stuff. No, there. It, never mind. You know, I won't get... But, but <laughs> under certain under photopic conditions this is true <laughs> so fine 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 right, right. yeah okay, yeah that's no true. no there's just I, I, I think there's a cool thing about how we can we can like a human can detect around it only takes like five photons to like get a response from a human that's better than chance yeah. so we humans can be actually like extremely sensitive to but whatever no continue that, that's not clinically <laughs> relevant well these there, there's definitely a lot we could go into with like the psychophysics of how humans can perceive these things, which is all that those you know heavyweights that created all this stuff were duking out and clarifying in the nineties. Right. Thank goodness right. we can s just go with the numbers that they found to be optimal, though. Oh yeah. Because we got to keep this lecture within some bounds. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I you just... you will see test questions on these this like decibel apostilbe thing, so that's why we went through the pain of kind of going through those nitty gritty things. If you want something easy to remember, just remember kind of the scale of ten decibels is like ten decibels is a thousand apostilbes, twenty is hundred, thirty decibels is ten apostilbes. So. 
I always kind of forget how logarithmic things work. So just remembering that like you shave a zero off, it's not pretty. Ben's probably having conniptions at my no, explanation of that. but It uh, is accurate. No, it works. <laughs> I like it. And then just sort of like for things in between, like, I don't know, 25 decibels, just cross your fingers and hand wave a little bit. Yeah. Well, a half order of magnitude is multiplies by three. So mm, roughly. Okay. Thank you, Benjamin. Longer. <laughs> longer Moving on. <laughs> I should just like not talk. So that's talking about the basics of illumination and, you know, decibels, measurements, stuff like that. Let's talk about test points. The difference between kinetic and automated is that kinetic, you're really just sort of drawing the boundaries at the edges of what someone can see. What the beauty of an automated system can do is it can actually just flash a little light anywhere. And it doesn't have to be necessarily at the boundary. It can actually test whether people see things within the boundary. And, you know, where this might be useful is scotomas that are just like islands of uh, problem areas in your vision. You might not actually find that scotoma if you just test the far peripheral boundary and you'd like, you know, seems okay. All right. A well, an experienced manual perimetrist will actually go back and kind of test points within there, but it makes it a lot easier if a computer will just do that from the outset. So random dots shown in random places, but they're not totally random. They are uh, mapped out according to different patterns. So what are some of the patterns? The most common ones are actually 24 degree and 30 degree programs. So for your Humphrey parameters, that's going to be, those are called the 24-2 and the 30-2 programs. In your octopus programs, they're called the octopus 32 and the octopus G1. The dirty secret here is we're actually telling patients most of the time that we're you doing this test to check their peripheral vision, right? But in fact, most of these, the common used programs, especially for glaucoma management and most everything, honestly, only tests the central like 30 out to 30 degrees. You know, if you went started measuring from the fovea and you went temporal a bit, it'll be out to 30 degrees. If you went nasal, 30 degrees. So in truth, the entire thing, like the quote unquote diameter, how much uh, visual field one of your normal everyday average glaucoma visual fields subtends is about 60 degrees. Whereas the actual amount that the eye really can see stretches out to even like 90 degrees temporal from the fovea, 60 degrees nasal to the fovea. So actually one eye can, should have like a field of view of about 150 degrees. And here we are only testing like 60 degrees total of it. Yeah, less than half. Right. Which actually, you know, the implications of this are, number one, does glaucoma really affect the peripheral vision or does it kind of more affect the central vision? It's like the dirty secret of it. it. The reason we do it is these distinctive glaucoma does patterns that we see and patterns for anything really, not just glaucoma, they're more reliably patterned in that central 30 or in the central 60, like 30 degrees to the net, to the temporal side, 30 degrees to the nasal side. Anything beyond that, the deviations become so variable that it's just really hard to make any sense out of patterns beyond, you know, 30 degrees out. So it's really rare that someone would do like a bigger than a 30 degree program. 
That said, these manual, these automated ones, the Humphrey, the Octopus, they actually can. There are very rarely used like 60 degree programs out there. Um, but it also means for those of you guys filling out DMV forms, you know, most states need like, they are starting to have requirements for like 100, how much of the total visual field can an IC? And you're working off of a Humphrey 30 or 24-2 and you're like, I, I don't know. I, Technically, we're not seeing all the way out there. So the proper thing for a DMV test, you should do a binocular estermin, which we're not going to talk about here. It's more of a thing for our primary care optometrist colleagues to worry about. But again, maybe in another version of this lecture someday. Basically, two versions of the fields that you'll see and the maps that are really used. There's the 24 degree and 30 degree programs, which on the Humphrey models are 24-2 programs and 30-2 programs. The octopus has calls, just calls them different things. The octopus 32, octopus G1, and they're basically test, putting out test points in a grid pattern with each test points about six degrees apart. They, they're also offset from the absolute origin. Like if you imagine the fovea as the origin point of a Cartesian plane, there is no test point right at the central fovea. They're actually like test points kind of like uh, northwest, northeast, southwest, southeast of the fovea that are three degrees apart. The other versions of these, you can get even uh, more central, of course, which you'll want in advanced cases where they only have a central island left. There's the 10-2 programs or for the octopus, the C8 programs, which tests the central like 8 to 10 degrees of field. And instead of kind of testing things every like six degrees apart, uh, each of the test points in a central field, like a 10-2 or C8, each test point is only one degree away from each other in the G1 or two degrees away from each other in the 10-2. So you can imagine it's a smaller space, but they're packing that space with a lot more points actually. Last thing, the minutiae, the kind of details for the test points is how big those points are. This is that other very testable thing where most of the time you're using a stimulus that's size three in Roman numerals. How much does a size three stimulus actually amount to on a on someone's macula, Ben? You know. Sorry, how much is a zero? Not not bad, dude. Is that what you asked? Let's start with three because that's what most people use. No, oh, three is a four millimeter. Yeah. Now the other stim uh, sizes they change by multiples of four, right, Ben? Right. Yeah, so kind of going in going in order then from zero, you're multiplying by four each time. If you're going down the scale, you're dividing by four. Uh, so a Goldman size zero is going to start out being one sixteenth square millimeter. Size one, it's a quarter millimeter squared. Size two, it's one millimeter squared. Size three, this tried and true gold standard, four millimeters squared. Then sixteen millimeters squared. Then sixty-four square millimeters. The Size five is a big boy. So that's like the basic fundamental stuff of perimetry that things like the OCAPs or the boards will probably try to trip you up with. But it's kind of, to be honest, the less interesting stuff because it does. We still haven't talked about you know when you're looking at a field, you want to basically ask yourself three questions: What is this that I'm looking at? Is question number one. Question number two: Is it real? 
And question number three, is it getting worse? And those are the ways that my mentors have taught me to basically look at fields, ask those three questions. Before we get there, though, you might also have to deal with the test question kind of querying you on the how these like sensitivity measurements are even like come by. So there's some cool stuff about how thresholding really works. Um, in the old days, they used to kind of literally measure like, okay, can you see this bright of a light? Yeah. Then I'll go down a little bit, make it a little less bright. Can you still see it? Yeah. And then they go down by like regular steps until you couldn't see the light. And then they'd go back up until you could see it, but they'd go back up in smaller increments. So you can imagine it took a ton of time, but it was actually pretty accurate. Nowadays, thanks to more probability based uh, software suites, it can be done a lot faster. And, you know, Visual fields still take a while, so imagine how long it used to take with the full staircase thresholds. But now they use like Bayesian probability to make it a lot faster. That is, by the way, what the test protocol that people will sometimes point out to you on the top of your printouts are. And for Humphreys, it's mostly like CETA, which stands for Swedish Interactive Thresholding. And you know, sometimes when I first learned that, I was like, okay, are there other protocols I could use? Basically, no. Everything in modern um, parametry for Humphreys is some derivative of the CETA standard. I think the newer stuff that people are trying to make into th trying to make happen, like virtual virtual reality parameters and stuff, they try to use non-standard, non-CETA things, but nothing has quite the same amount of standardization and gold standard like trust that CETA does. And then there's different versions of CETA, CETA standard, CETA fast, nowadays even CETA faster. I'm not going to talk about that now, but standard is basically what you should be using if you're following somebody over the long term. Fast, if you can get away with it. The octopus parameters, um, they use a program called tendency-oriented parameter uh, protocols, so top protocols, and they're a little different, but that's for a more advanced lecture. So how to read a Humphrey printout, the BCSE gives a lot of attention to this. And Ben, maybe you can uh, kind of help us kind of recreate this image that I can't show the folks there sitting in their cars. Sorry, like, yeah. how, what are all the pieces of a visual field printout? Okay. Um, well, there's like the demographics at the top. Then below that, you have a big old grayscale representation. It's more of the artistic picture. It's not the actual, uh, like it's not the data you should interpret, but it's an artistic picture that, you know, it's nice for patients to look at. Then there are two plots under that. This, that's where like the real meat and potatoes of it, of, of, the, of a Humphrey visual field is. And those are both represented by like these grid of numbers underneath those, them these black dots. Okay, so there's one, there's a total deviation plot and there's a pattern plot. So for both of them, it has a bunch of numbers that are deviations from the expected normal for that patient's age. So, you know, if you got everything in the money, it'd be a bunch of zeros. Or if you were like, you know, if you had like a cataract or something and everything, you know, was like you, you need a little bit brighter light, there might be like minus seven across the board or something like that. It will tell you the number of um, of decibels that, that you're off from what you're, quote, supposed to be, that mm -hmm. we don't judge you. And then the pattern <laughs> takes the generalized subtraction well it takes a generalized depression so it takes like an average value from the total deviation plot 
and gets rid of that so that you can see what the pattern deviation loss is. So if you have the cataract, which I mentioned, then it would like globally depress everything in your field. But in the pattern plot, they would take away the effect of the cataract by just kind of calculating how much this total like being suppressed across the whole field. And then you get a pattern underneath that. Yeah. Great. Thank you for being my visual aid in spoken mm-hmm. form, Ben. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to paint with, paint with <laughs> uh, words here. It's not easy. So one day when we get video stuff, maybe we'll revisit. Eyes this. for ears for eyes Yay. coming in an undetermined time. Oh lord. <laughs> <laughs> On the right side are the summary statistics, which aren't pr- like big cool maps or anything. They're just lines, of, very brief lines of text, but they sh- really show a lot. They're like kind of averaging out the entire map they take each point kind of weigh them together and present them as a summary and they include things that you maybe may have heard already the mean deviation the pattern standard deviation and the glaucoma hemifield test as well as uh, in some newer models of the humphrey the visual field index let's start with the mean deviation that's probably the simplest one um it is the if you took all the points of like depression and weighing them all together, kind of summing them up and giving weight in a certain way to certain parts, that's how bad somebody's seeing. So if their mean deviations like close to zero, great. They didn't have like too much depression anywhere. If they have like a mean deviation of like, I don't know, minus 10 decibels on, on total, then they might have like an arcuate defect in one place. They might have an altitudinal defect in another or something. But if you just sort of blended them all together and kind of averaged out how much darkness is there on this field, that's your mean deviation. How that's different from a pattern standard deviation is that the pattern standard is a measure of how much variance there is. So if you consider like somebody sees something just fine in their central uh, foveal point, but they've got like a big nasal step right next to it. If that nasal step, you know, if they needed really, really bright lights to be able to see anything in that spot, then that's a really deep scotoma right there. And the pattern standard is a measure of how different, how deep that scotoma is compared to how normal your other points are. Um, so it's useful for kind of pinpointing a little more specifically, hey, the mean deviation just sort of told you generally what, how this person is doing. The pattern standard will tell you how much variation there is between the peaks of their hill of vision and their valleys, the depressions in the hill of vision. Something to know about it. That means mean deviation, the more negative it gets, the worse it is. So zero down to minus 30 or so is your usual range with minus 30, of course, being terrible. For a pattern standard deviation, though, the higher the number gets, it's actually kind of going in the opposite direction. It's going in the positive direction, the worse it gets. So a pattern standard of zero is great. A pattern standard of like plus 10 is not good or it's not as good. So that's mainly like you'll notice. Oh, it's weird. I think if you get a color printout, it'll show it in red if it's in the wrong direction. But if it's not, just know that, you know, more positive is good for a mean deviation, but bad for a pattern standard. Then there's the glaucoma hemifield test, which is pretty simple to look at because it just tells you, is this field like normal? Is it probably not normal or is it definitely not normal? That's based off of comparing the superior zones of the field to the inferior zones. And it's 
more specifically for glaucoma, because glaucoma tends to affect the superior and inferior halves of the field asymmetrically. A lot of research and a lot of work went into this, a lot of it from originating from folks at Hopkins. But uh, nowadays, you know, you can consider it as kind of a screening thing because it's pretty easy to tell what is a glaucomatous defect when you just look at it yourself. Yeah. Visual field index I'll talk about a little bit later, but those are your summary statistics and Ben nicely explained to us the maps that are on the other side of the field. Yeah, and a little pro tip is I've stopped using the black dot version of the total deviation plot and pattern plots because you know the, the black dots gives you like that percent certainty or whatever that there's um that there's like a visual field defect in those areas but i often find them somewhat deceiving because it, it simplifies the number plot by quite a bit so you know it might show something like minus seven minus seven minus seven um and it only shows like a soft gray thing but if you look at the actual numbers itself that's the data that is just being simplified in the black dots so I only look at the number plot now to get an idea of like, oh, is this a real nasal step or like how rapid of a decrease is there? Like, why not just use that data when you can interpret it? Yeah, the um, the black dots are a little different based on what you're talking about. Like if you're comparing between different tests, like a test today compared to how the patient did six months ago, um, there are a lot of caveats to that. So we'll talk about that soon later. But yeah, if you want to... We all knew Ben was a numbers purist, so we appreciate that approach. <laughs> I just feel like the computer can deceive us. I don't trust computers. I don't trust them. So this uh, this next part, most of you who have been uh, already looking at this stuff for a while, you'll kind of know already. But for maybe the students among you, what are some patterns of real scotomatous defects that you'd see, Ben? Yeah, I think... So I thought I think this is incredibly confusing because we throw out all these terms like arcuate and nasal step and like all these things and they you know they seem like a bunch of random things you have to memorize. I think to know what's real, especially within glaucoma, all you have to know is what the nerve retinal nerve fiber layer map looks like. Hmm, um, yeah. I wish we could project this, but let me try to paint a picture with your words as you Google the what the retinal nerve fiber layer map looks like. Here, okay, no, okay, okay. Start here. Here we go. Start with your optic nerve, and then put a bunch of lines emanating straight out from it. Okay, like you know those things that you can put the with the holes you can put play-doh through, and it makes like hair that comes straight out of it. What are those things called? They're wow. like the hair play-doh things. Okay, <laughs> imagine that just lines, or something. Yeah, it's like a chia pet type thing. Just remember, imagine a like you know on the flat piece of paper, just lines coming straight out of it. Okay, <laughs> and then now put your fovea next to that optic nerve and then imagine that fovea bending those lines around it okay and then those lines will meet you know on the opposite side of the fovea and then they'll meet and just stop there okay if you can imagine that picture that's what the retinal nerve fiber layer map looks like you can you know you can google it like to, to confirm that that's what it is yeah, you, it looks like uh, another metaphor um, magnets and metal, f like iron yeah. filings in the poles, they kind of arc around to meet each other at the different poles. So right. A little like that. Yeah. So I, I mean, you should probably know what the names of the different field defects you see in glaucoma are, but I actually, I discourage like memorizing them and just recognizing, okay, in glaucoma, 
the defects are usually from some bundle of these nerve fibers. Yeah. So they will follow those nerve fibers. That's why you can have a nasal step and not have a temporal step because on the temporal side, they just kind of fan out because they don't have this kind of magnet effect of bringing the fibers together. But on when we say nasal step, that remember that corresponds to your temporal field because everything's inverted. So, so you can so you can have a nasal step because you can have loss of nerve fibers that stop at that horizontal meridian because that's where the kind of that magnet effect stops the fibers when it comes around the fovea. Yeah. So, like all these arcuate too, you know, arcuate just follows the arc of um, one of these nerve fibers or you know paracentral scotomas you know, altitudinal defects, they all just follow this neurofiber layer map. So if you just understand that, you don't have to memorize anything. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the, just the names of it, it's not that high yield. You'll just, you will find out what these names are anyway. One caveat I'd say, some texts call the good old arcuate defect a gerum scotoma, B-J-E-R-R-U-M, which is a Throwback to uh, Doctor Bjerum from. Uh, Is it not Bjerum? Is Bjerum? not Bjerum? I don't know. Like I know uh, Bjorn Borg. Like you know Bjorn is the name. Is like it's like Bjorn. So it, it might be Bjerum. That is a good point. For some reason, I feel like I've heard the pronunciation Jerum before, but you know, I still don't oh. know how you and I are supposed to say Chalazian. Kalesian, yeah, I mean, so Kalesian, yeah. So apologies to Dr. B- apologies to Sweden as a whole. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the cool stuff. Um, the more clinically relevant stuff, again, back to those questions. Is this real? Is it, you know, what is it? Is it real? Is it getting worse? We've talked about what is it now. The real stuff, is this, is what you're seeing actually what the patient sees? Or for whatever variant, for whatever <laughs> real world problem, is something going weird? Um, there's always some variation just between how someone's doing the test one day versus another. It's a very subjective thing. Like visual field testing is not objective structural measurement. It's you're trying to. It's a little like refracting somebody, and if they're less reliable or less good at doing the test, you're going to have a lot of kind of weird stuff. So that's why at the top of the printout, you also have these reliability indices, at least for a Humphrey. And the octopus, they also have some reliability indices too. They're just not at the top of the list. I think they're at the bottom of the page, actually. Um, but among them, you've got your false positives, your false negatives, your fixation losses too. Um, what's a false positive suggest, Ben? I mean, they didn't see anything where they clicked a button anyways. Like to keep you happy. They're like, oh, the doctor must have put a light there. So I'm going to push this button so that they think that I know what I'm doing. Yeah, it's it's not great. Um, there is a certain threshold over which you probably have to say, okay, I can't take this too seriously anymore. And that's with some recent research that comes out of, you know, well, everybody does stuff like this. Uh, 15% is kind of your base kind of cutoff value. Although it should be said, you shouldn't ever just throw out a field. Like it is the patient's best effort for that day, and you should take it seriously until, you know, you trend more reassurance into the system by checking it again in the future. But over fifteen percent, you can you have a little bit of an excuse going like, well, I don't know if this is real or not. 
False negatives, on the other hand, are a little different. Can you say why that is, Ben? This is like the opposite. You know they should be able to see in this area, but they just don't click the button. Um, but that's the caveat, right? Like, how do you actually know that they really should have seen that? Yeah. Like, maybe it's a false negative. Maybe they should have seen it. Or maybe it's a true scotoma. And how the machine judges what a false negative is, we're not going to get into the details of it, but it does have to kind of take that into account. There's some probability that goes into it. There's, in some older versions, some catch trials where it was like, haha, I got you. You said you could see this earlier, and now you said you can't. But even then, it's like... So if a patient has a lot of false negatives, you can't... You have to be even more benefit of the doubt-like for that. You have to say, well... It's falsely negative today, we think, but I should take it seriously because this might be something real. So if you're going to throw anything out, it's for false positives more than 15% false positives. The false negatives could be like 50% false negatives, and you should still be very cautious before you throw that out. Fixation losses are the little bit similar like it's there are some models that kind of keep track of where the person's eye is moving and if it notices that the eye is kind of losing fixation uh, more than 25 percent of the time it's said that that's also not so reliable but that's also kind of like the th not as gold standard the thing that you really have to be looking out for is the false positive rate those are what the, ma the machine can do to keep track of whether something's real or not for you what the machine won't tell you about are things you have to kind of use your own uh, prior knowledge of to be careful for, and that's artifactual defects. There's a bunch of them. Um, the one you may talk about frequently, let's start with eyelid artifact. Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like on a field? It, looks, it can look a lot like a superior arcuate scotoma, you know, like a superior, like, you know, um, it can look like glaucoma, but... Um, it, you know, so it, it, this is a black scotoma at the top of someone's, um, visual field, but the difference from glaucoma is it has a super sharp offset, right? So whereas in glaucoma, it should be kind of grad, like somewhat gradually approach, you know, a scotoma. So the numbers at the, in that area might be like minus 20 or minus like 30. And then, and then it's in real glaucoma be like, you know, minus, um, then go like to minus 15 and then to like seven or zero or whatever. Yeah. But in, it, in eyelid artifact, it just goes from like minus 30 and then goes like back to normal. So it's a yeah. very sharp demarcation. If you remember too, um, these are tests that are kind of artificially closer up to someone's eye than they're really seeing the bowl of the perimeter that they're looking at is only like a couple inches away from their face you basically want to make it so that they're emetropic at that um, fixation distance at so that they can see the back of the bowl of the perimeter clearly one problem here is if the person is super hyperopic then some cool little tricks of optics to cross-reference other subject materials then those can introduce more problems and more artifact. Imagine, Ben, you have an aphakic patient who needs like a super thick Coke bottle, like corrective lens, just to even see anything. Um, why might someone like that have more lens rim artifact than someone who's myopic? Yeah, it's because of the mag 
I mean, uh, there's yeah. a couple effects that are going on, but it's because of the mag of the lens. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you have like a plus lens in front of you, then there's you have higher magnification, but that higher magnification fills up your whole field. So it's almost right. like, not that I play a lot of shooter games, but if you play shooter games or you're like an actual shooter, then you'll know <laughs> when you look through the scope of a lens, then, you know, you have something that you can see a lot of, but your peripheral vision gets kind of knocked out because your whole field of view is being filled up by, you know, the smaller area. So it's like the same effect here. When you have a high plus lens, you lose that peripheral. There are other effects also, like the um, chromatic and uh, spherical aberration at the edges of a super highly hyperopic lens correction can actually induce like pin cushing effects, which also kind of messes with the peripheral area. But essentially, everybody's going to tell you that lens rim artifact happens more often with hyperopes than myopes, and those effects are the reason. Magnification most specifically for the hyperopic lens corrections. Yeah, and those can be look like glaucoma too, you know, because it yeah. could just only affect the top or the bottom depending how decentered the lens is. So it's really important to be able to recognize that and look if someone's hyperopic. Yeah, and you can and sometimes, um, I'm not sure if it happens all the time. I feel like it, I've seen it before. Sometimes the technicians will actually type in what the correction they used for the patient is at the top of the page printout. So you can like, if something's looking a little suspicious, you can check, oh, is it like a super hyperopic correction, like plus nine or something? And right. uh, that that will be explained for you. The last one that you probably see most on like standardized testing is the cloverleaf pattern, just because it's so distinctive. Um, and what does a cloverleaf pattern, well, look like, or what does it suggest to us, Ben? Um, I mean, it looks like a cloverleaf. I don't know. <laughs> it's like a cloverleaf that's like, tilted 45 degrees you know so the cloves are like pointing like they're not pointing like north southeast west they're pointing like northeast and southeast you know do you know why that happens it is because (laughs) of the algorithm yeah so they usually start the test with four central points um just to make sure like kind of show the person this is how it works those points are also usually supra threshold like they're super bright points um, so after the first four points, everything gets harder and that's kind of a designed into the way it is. If you have some inattentive patient or somebody who, you know, just doesn't take the test that seriously or something, they will probably be, they'll definitely be able to see those central four. They're the first ones. They're at their most attentive at the beginning of the test and they're the brightest and everything else is harder. So if they stop paying attention, they'll stop clicking. But that's why the clover leaf of the central four points looks like the way it does. Um, and it can suggest just those things, an inattentive patient or even a malingerer sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like someone that loses attention like kind of quickly, right, over the course. Like they're like really tired. I mean, I don't blame them. Yeah, right. Like I'd love to do one of these at the end of a call shift or something just to, just to demonstrate <laughs> the clover leaf. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever, have you ever taken one yourself, Ben? I've taken one. I it was a, it felt like an extremely high pressure situation because our one of our attendings had his all the first years do it on the same day. He made me do it too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're like, and, oh uh, god, I hope this doesn't find anything. I, know, I, like, I gotta get up. I gotta get a positive number in the mean deviation. I gotta show him. I gotta get the high score. 
The only other thing that I'd say maybe is more relevant for somebody to keep track of, just in case it pops up, is what the visual field index is, which is another of the summary statistics that's a bit newer for the Humphrey parameters. It basically just takes like a visual field total deviation and gives it a score from 0%, which is blind eye, to 100%, which is like, hey, we can see everything. And then it gives each day's tests like a percentage value. And you can track that VFI over time with some caveats that uh, it measures the central points more heavily than the peripheral points. And it's not as good at keeping track of things when things get to a certain level of badness. That's all I'll say about that. To get back to other basic things, there are other versions of parametry beyond just Humphreys and Goldman's and even Octopus's. There are briefly mentioned in the basic text is frequency doubling technology or FDT. There's also swap or short wavelength automated parametry and something weird called flicker defined form parametry or FDF. Let's start with that because it's easy to knock out. It's still a very developmental area of parametry research, I think. So there's less on this in general, but it's believed to stimulate a certain subpopulations of the retinal ganglion cells called the magnocellular cells, which are supposedly more for motion. Um, each of these tests is trying to take advantage. Each of these like alternative parametric tests is trying to take advantage of certain subpopulations of the retinal ganglion cells. And uh, the magnocellular cells, which are more motion, um, more for motion detection, is what FDF tries to take advantage of. It's also what FDT tries to take advantage of too, um, the frequency doubling technology. Uh, I think this is more for like screening stuff. I've mostly seen FDT fields in like you know, you go out to do some community service and you bring like the tiny version of the perimeter with you and it's usually yeah. an FDT thing. Yeah, it's like smaller and cheaper. Right. So. And it uses like Flickr to kind of test like contrast sensitivity. It's a bit different and I don't think you need to know too much about it. Yeah. Swap is always interesting. Um, ben and I have some fun experience with Swap because for a while people thought that maybe this, the fact that this Swap test tests for what's thought to be the coniocellular subpopulation. Um, people thought maybe this could detect like changes even before all the other types of parametry could. What SWAP does is it like instead of you know just monochromatic stimuli, it actually has like a yellow background with blue stimuli points. You can imagine that's a bit nauseating for people to look at. And when we did hey, this, hey, for hey, blue and yellow are the colors of the University of Michigan. Hey, oh, hey, hey, now. Goodness. Don't say that that color combination is nauseating. Uh, I I'm sorry. For whatever <laughs> reason, be. all of my like school rivals have always been on the blue side of things. I've always gone mm -hmm. to like more red schools. More red. Well, it was red okay. and yellow for like so 10 years So keep in mind this straight. disclaimer. Yeah, keep in mind this disclaimer when you're listening to this, that Andrew may uh, be heavily biased towards the red color of the spectrum. Continue. <laughs> Speaking of biases, um, biases, for a while, you know, people were really hoping Swap would have a lot of uh, cool utility. It's pretty well recognized now that all of that doesn't work. So uh, anytime, if, if people were doing Swap tests before, they probably aren't now. 
uh, I'll just say that if you find yourself doing one anyway, it's definitely more for uh, academic <laughs> interest. Yeah, and they're harder to interpret too. I mean, like they, yeah. they have these things. It's like, what do you do with these? Like, yeah, yeah, good idea though. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, just to give a summary of everything we talked about, we talked about a little bit the differences between kinetic and static parametry, with Goldman being kinetic parametry and Octopus and Humphrey parameters being static and more definitively more used these days. We talked about some basics about how these parameters work as far as the illumination values that they go with. And the background illuminance for Humphrey is 31.5 apostilbs. It measures things in decibels. So the brighter the stimulus is, the smaller it'll be in decibels. The dimmer something is, the uh, more positive decibels it'll have. We talked about test points and test patterns with 24 and 30 degree programs being more commonly used. The central points, the 10-2 or C8 pat programs being usually alternatives you can use in advanced cases or when you really want to look at the central uh, foveal area. And we talked about test point sizes. These are all very testable. So remember a Goldman size three stimulus is four square millimeters in size on the field that the patient's looking at. And uh, it goes up from there or down from there in multiples of four. Then we kind of went into what's some of the architecture of a uh, more specifically a Humphrey page printout will look like with Ben's caveat to make sure you don't uh, discount looking at the raw numbers or the uh, number forms of all of those in contrast to just some of the black square printouts. We talked about summary statistics about what mean deviation, pattern standard deviation, the glaucoma hemifield test, and to some extent the visual field index, what all of those um, indices are and what they mean. We talked about reliability indices, false positives are the ones you should take most seriously. And we talked about different kinds of artifacts um, with uh, a particular attention to the blockages that you'll get from like eyelids or lens rims or even just really high hyperopic corrections. We didn't talk so much about, you know, keeping track of progression, which is more of a specific glaucoma thing. And maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode one day. And then we also talked about, uh, we ended things with the alternative parametry tests with frequency doubling, short wavelength automated and flicker defined with, uh, mostly FDT still being in more common use as a screening tool. Anything I missed, Ben? Fielded. Yeah, no, that was good. Thanks for reviewing everything. I feel... I'm trying to think of a pun. Well, I'm going to edit a pun in later. Oh, if no, you, like you can't do that. That's unfair. <laughs> no, it, it, shut <laughs> up. It's movie magic. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes for ears is number four. But if, if you can do that any time, there's just going to be so many puns all the time. <laughs> Um, right. The Instagram is the same thing. The Instagram <laughs> is the same. The website is the same. Eyes four ears with the number four. And uh, we'll see you next time. Say bye. Bye. bye.